1: Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Monday, August 2nd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, what makes an Olympic sport an Olympic sport? And what does it take to get cut from the lineup? Namely, why is baseball getting cut once again in 2024, but breakdancing will make its Olympic debut? A breakdown of how it works. Plus, Boeing is trying again for a successful launch of their CST-100 Starliner tomorrow afternoon. What went wrong last time and what's at stake? And the mysterious Jetpack Man has returned to the Los Angeles airspace. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. I've been talking up the new sports at this year's Olympics a lot on this show, especially skateboarding. My latest curiosity is watching how each nation decides to interpret what a skateboard uniform should look like. Baggy shorts, khaki pants, button-down shirts. In its inaugural year, the wardrobes are kind of all over the place. And maybe I'll dig into this a bit more in a future episode because I am unreasonably fascinated by it. But yes, skateboarding is one of six new-ish sports added to the Olympic lineup this year, which has a lot of people wondering, what does it take to be added? And why do some get taken away, and sometimes return? Emily Vanderwerf dug into these queries over at Vox. She notes that the six new sports mark the biggest addition since 1920, but also that so many events have been removed that the overall number of events has gone down from 339 to 329. The six new sports consist of four actually new ones, skateboarding, surfing, karate, and sport climbing, as well as baseball and softball, which were last featured as Olympic sports in 2008. And baseball and softball won't be returning in 2024 in Paris, nor will karate, although skateboarding, surfing, and sport climbing will all be there and will be joined by breakdancing. Breakdancing. Baseball and softball will be back at the 2028 games in Los Angeles, however. What's with all the shuffling around? Per Vanderwerf, a lot of it has to do with the International Olympic Committee's Agenda 2020, which was adopted in 2014, and part of its aim is to, quote, give individual host cities more control over which events are medal sports, end quote. So it makes sense that baseball fanatics Japan would bring it back, as would the U.S., and I can see how France wouldn't care as much. Breakdancing, meanwhile, makes sense for a continent super into street dancing. And as Vanderhoef notes, while there's a lot of actual criteria for inclusion as a sport and you do need to have global appeal, it often helps if you A. appeal particularly to the host nation and B. are popular with the youths. Quoting Vander in Vox, the IOC has increasingly used the Youth Olympics, a perpetually beleaguered event for athletes between 14 and 18 years old, as a way to try out events that might merit Olympic inclusion. Breakdancing, for instance, will make its Olympics debut in 2024 after a successful trial run at the 2018 Youth Olympics in Buenos Aires. The Youth Olympics are held every four years but on an alternating schedule, so the Winter Youth Olympics happen in years when there is a Summer Olympics and vice versa. Said Sydney Bauer, a freelance journalist who has covered the Olympics for nine years, it's an ethos of, okay, we need to appeal to young people. We need young millennials and Gen Z to be interested in the Olympics, and they don't care about wrestling. They don't care about weightlifting. They don't care about track and field. So how can we get young people interested, but also not change everything we've done with these core sports because they're very old federations and make a lot of money? End quote. The flip-flopping on sports can cause a lot of uncertainty within those fields. Even the 25-ish sports that have been named by the IOC as core sports, ones like track and field, swimming, and gymnastics, which will always be included, can occasionally face relegation. Wrestling is always teetering on the edge of being removed from core sports status, mostly as a way for the IOC to exert pressure over the Wrestling Federation to coerce them to make changes— But for those non-core sports, as I said, it kind of comes down to what each host nation wants to include. Back in the day, there used to be a separation between medal-earning sports and demonstration sports, which would be sports popular in the region of the host nation, but not globally, and performed, but not part of the medal competition. For example, in 1912, Stockholm demonstrated Glima, a type of Nordic wrestling. And in 1928, Amsterdam demonstrated korfball, which is a co-ed kind of netball. And then in 1932, LA demonstrated American football, and in 1984, they demonstrated baseball. Baseball, like a few other demonstration sports such as handball and judo, have since become medal-earning sports, at least sometimes. And the demonstration category was done away with completely after 1992. Now, any sport in the Olympics can earn you a medal. And part of the appeal of adding sports that may not be as popular everywhere is to help introduce the sport to other audiences. Proponents of surfing this year have been especially vocal about that benefit— Fernando Aguirre, president of the International Surfing Association, told Vox, quote, The Olympics are the highest, largest, and most visible stage for any sport. Surfing, being in the Olympic Games, will be great for surfing. We'll be allowed to communicate our message and our lifestyle to billions of people. It's developing surfing, taking it to Africa, to Asia, to Latin America, to areas where there are incredible waves, but there aren't as many surfers, end quote. And trying out new sports that may or may not last for years to come is all part of the IOC attempting to be more diverse, both less Western Euro-centric and in terms of gender parity. Quoting Vox, the number of women competing in Tokyo should be 48.8% of the total number of competing athletes, and the 2024 games hope to hit 50% on the dot. That's well up from 38.2% at the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, end quote. And one move this year that's helping hit that gender goal? More mixed gender events. By which I mean events where the teams are made up of both men and women, not just like men's relay and women's relay, but rather a relay team consisting of both men and women. There have previously been mixed gender events in sailing, tennis, badminton, and equestrian, but this year the IOC added mixed gender events events in archery, athletics, judo, shooting, swimming, table tennis, and triathlon. Writing for Sports Illustrated, Michael Rosenberg underscored Vanderherf's point about the Olympics just kind of throwing things at the wall to see what sticks, saying, quote, I love the mixed events. They're fun, they showcase different kinds of athletes, and the Olympics are the perfect venue for trying new things, because they're a big, complicated mess and nobody can make sense of them anyway, End quote. The new mixed-gender events are mostly getting positive feedback, and most are organized so you have, for example, two men and two women. It's not like one team will have four men and another three women, and then some debate could erupt about gendered advantages. The amount of athletes per gender you get is codified. However, quoting again from Sports Illustrated, In the mixed medley swimming relay at the Tokyo Aquatic Center, each country was allowed to choose two men and two women to swim the four strokes, though the Russians tried to enter three male swimmers and a pharmacist. End quote. Now listen, I know a lot of people of various genders that most people have never heard of, but pharmacist is new even to me. All jokes aside, the IOC's obviously got a lot of work to do when it comes to sexism, racism, and more, but it's good to see some strides being made. And as for future sports that could be added via this bureaucratic but ultimately kind of subjective process, according to Vanderherf, cricket, flag football, and even ultimate frisbee. Though if we're open to adding sports that were popular intramurals when millennials were in college, my vote goes for muggle quidditch all the way. Which, by the way, created a really equitable approach to gender for their athletes nearly a decade ago, brilliantly called title nine and three quarters, but that's a story for another time. Still, maybe the IOC should hire the International Quidditch Association as consultants.
0: At Fandil Casino, we know the only thing better than a win is a free win. That's why we made Reward Machine, the daily free to play game that gives you a chance to win up to $2,000 in casino bonus. We've given away over $50 million in free bonuses, and we're just getting started. Every day at 6 p.m., you get three chances to spin the Reward Machine reels. There are three ways to win one, match any three symbols for an instant win, two, collect symbols each day for a chance to win weekly prizes, or three, win up to $2,000. If you collect three trophies, FanDuel has given away over $50 million to hundreds of thousands of people through Reward Machine. So what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Casino app by going to fanduel.com slash PA3 and start playing Reward Machine today. That's fanduel.com slash PA3. No purchase necessary. 21 plus and present in PA. Bonus issued as is non-withdrawable casino-only site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at fanduel.com slash casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG.
1: So tomorrow, Tuesday, August 3rd, Boeing is set to send their uncrewed CST-100 Starliner to the International Space Station on a resupply mission. Hopefully. Space.com reports there's currently a 40% chance of the launch going ahead as planned due to forecasted thunderstorms in the area tomorrow afternoon. And the launch was originally scheduled for Friday the 30th, but had to be postponed due to a thruster misfire on a Russian module at the ISS on the 29th. But even that was technically a do-over from the original CST-100 Starliner launch back in December of 2019. Quoting the MIT Technology Review, On December 20th, 2019, Boeing was launching its brand new CST-100 Starliner spacecraft to the ISS on an uncrewed demonstration mission. Along with SpaceX's Crew Dragon, Starliner was set to become NASA's go-to option for ferrying astronauts to and from Earth's orbit. That didn't happen. Starliner made it to space, but a computer glitch sank the spacecraft's chances of actually getting to the ISS. Though it came back to Earth in one piece a couple of days later, it was clearly not ready for human missions." And as a reminder of how we got here, quoting further, the shutdown of the space shuttle program in 2011 gave NASA a chance to rethink its approach. Instead of building a new spacecraft designed for travel to low-Earth orbit, the agency elected to open up opportunities to the private sector as part of a new commercial crew program. It awarded contracts to Boeing and SpaceX to build their own crewed vehicles, Starliner and Crew Dragon, respectively. NASA would buy flights on these vehicles and focus its own efforts on building new technologies for missions to the moon, Mars, and elsewhere. Both companies hit development delays, and for nine years, NASA's only way of getting to space was by handing over millions of dollars to Russia for seats on the Soyuz missions. SpaceX finally sent astronauts to space in May 2020, followed by two more crewed missions since, but Boeing is still lagging behind. Its December 2019 flight was supposed to prove that all its systems worked and that it was capable of docking with the ISS and returning to Earth safely, but a glitch with its internal clock caused it to execute a critical burn prematurely, making it impossible to dock with the ISS. A subsequent investigation revealed that a second glitch would have caused Starliner to fire its thrusters at the wrong time when making its descent back to Earth, which would have destroyed the spacecraft. That glitch was fixed mere hours before Starliner was set to come back home. The software issues aren't unexpected in spacecraft development, but they're things Boeing could have resolved ahead of time with better quality control or better oversight from NASA." End quote. Now, the problems have hopefully been solved, with Arizona State University space policy expert George Autry telling the Tech Review that he expects this orbital flight test 2 to go perfectly. And for the record, NASA isn't making Boeing do this second Starliner test flight. They decided to do it themselves, and to pay for it, to the tune of $410 million dollars. But it could be worth it if it goes well, because Boeing is in desperate need of good PR. Apart from the highly publicized 737 MAX crashes in recent years, Boeing is responsible for building the booster for the space launch system, which continues to be delayed as its budget bloats ever further. There's also been accusations of fraud and being named in a criminal probe relating to a bid for lunar lander. Not to mention, if this flight test fails, their relationship with NASA could falter something that maybe didn't used to matter as much back when there weren't so many other companies throwing their hats in the ring. Boeing used to be NASA's primary partner, working with them from the very beginning of the agency in 1958, building the first capsules for Apollo astronauts and helping maintain the International Space Station. But SpaceX has pulled ahead, and one more failure could make it even harder for Boeing to catch up. But if all goes well, as it should, here are the details. Quoting an update from NASA, Starliner will launch on a United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket from Space Launch Complex 41 at Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in Florida. About 30 minutes after launch, Starliner will perform its orbital insertion burn to begin its day-long trip to the space station. The spacecraft will carry more than 400 pounds of NASA cargo and crew supplies to the space station. It will return to Earth with more than 550 pounds of cargo, including the reusable nitrogen-oxygen recharge system tanks that provide breathable air to station crew members. OFT-2 will demonstrate the end-to-end capabilities of the Starliner spacecraft and Atlas V rocket from launch to docking to return to Earth with a desert landing in the western United States. The uncrewed mission will provide valuable data toward NASA certifying Boeing's crew transportation system for regular flights to and from the space station, end quote. You can watch the launch, if it goes forward, on NASA's website and social media channels. The launch is scheduled for 1.20 p.m. Eastern Time tomorrow the 3rd. Jetpack man is back again. Last Wednesday, a pilot identified an object he believed to be a person with a jetpack just east of LAX at an altitude of 5,000 feet. The LA Times provided quotes from air traffic control and pilots upon sighting the man. One air traffic alert said, "Quote: use caution, the jetpack guy is back end quote. And a controller asked a pilot if he saw a UFO, to which the pilot replied, quote, we were looking, but we did not see Iron Man, end quote. Which does make me think about how annoying Iron Man must have been to all the air traffic controllers. This is the fourth time a person with a jetpack has been allegedly spotted flying around LA, with previous sightings reported by pilots in December, October, and August of last year. But, quoting the LA Times, experts knowledgeable about jetpacks have expressed some skepticism about the reports. Jetpacks are extremely expensive and difficult to obtain. The altitudes reported by the pilots would be hard to maintain with the jetpack's fuel capacity. It's possible the pilots misidentified balloons or drones, experts said. We've worked with the FAA on each of the past sightings, and thus far we have not been able to validate any of the reports, said FBI spokesperson Laura A. Miller. End quote. And Lucas Ropek at Gizmodo believes it's not a person at all but a mannequin attached to a drone. In fact, one of the pilots that cited the alleged jetpack last year even told the FBI in an interview that it looked just like a mannequin attached to a drone that he'd seen in a YouTube video, and he shared the exact video with the FBI. The video features a military-kitted mannequin on a duocopter drone and is from Germany, but could obviously be replicated stateside much more easily than flying a jetpack above 5,000 feet altitude. Link in the show notes to see it in action. Or maybe the truth is closer to AV Club's totally serious theory that the man is French jet skiing champion and military reservist Frankie Zapata, who flew over the heads of Parisians in a military display on Bastille Day 2019 on a sort of hoverboard-type device while toting a rifle. Quoting AV Club, Evil French supervillain and one man invasion force Frankie Zapata has been fairly quiet over the last few months, but returned on Wednesday evening to further baffle the FBI and air traffic controllers. Let them think what they want. Just take our advice and start your French classes, everyone. It's obvious now that the hoverboard supervillain will meet no real opposition by the time he leads his battle fleet to the White House. End quote. Well, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.